exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Faithful God, root us more deeply in your sacred story. Enliven us to embody your liberating love that all the world may delight in your goodness. Amen. And please be seated. Every year around this time, we take a Sunday to remember the story of the Bible. Uh, Last week, I talked about the books of the Bible that don't progress the story, and we covered a lot of books, 49 books, not in in total. We kind of summarized a few of them, but, but 49 books. And this morning, we're going to consider the books that tell the story of Scripture. This story is important to us here at Pearl. It's one of the three rhythms that we exist to cultivate. As you know, if you've been here for a while, at Pearl, we are cultivating three rhythms, a sacred story, a common table, and divine love. These three rhythms actually work together. We say shaped by a sacred story, a sacred story that that tells about a loving God, and, and cultivating this common table around which every person belongs. So a story of love and a table, a system of belonging, love and belonging, we believe uh, animate life by love, or rather than many of your religious animations like uh, shame and guilt and duty, uh, we want people at Pearl to be motivated, to be animated by love. About our sacred story, we write, the scriptures tell a story about a benevolent creator who is wooing creation out of chaos and into abounding life. According to this story, this generous and self-giving creator is embodied in Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection reveal the way of God's loving kindness in the world. As a community rooted in Christianity, the sacred story casts our vision. It shapes our language, orients our hearts, and directs the ways that we mark our days and live out our lives here on earth. And so this morning, let us once again recall our sacred story, the Bible. As we heard in the scripture readings this morning, it begins in Genesis with chaos that is fashioned into a garden, and it concludes in Revelation where we see the garden cultivated into a world at peace. And this progression from garden to world in full bloom, it begs the question, how? How is the garden cultivated into a world at peace? Well, as we all know, uh, the whole thing starts in Genesis. So we're going to start in Genesis. In the beginning, chaos. That's what we see. But the story tells us that the divine, the spirit of God is, is hovering over the chaos, longing, hoping, desiring to bring about life. 
You see, this is the divine dream. The divine dream is to cultivate life out of the chaos, any kind of chaos, every kind of chaos, maybe even today's chaos. What if we could see everything in the world today as as the divine just hovering over it, hoping to cultivate something good? Wouldn't that be hopeful? That would be so hopeful. Well, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaos, desiring to create life. And the divine speaks a word. And that word cuts the stars. That word shapes the sun. That word swirls the ocean deep. And that word reached down into the earth and scooped up the dirt and sculpted man, Adam, in Hebrew, man. Pulling a rib from the man, that word sculpted woman, Eve. That's the Hebrew word for woman, Eve. So Adam and Eve, man and woman, the totality of humankind in our sacred story are placed in a garden. And they're invited to do the work of God. Well, what is the work of God? It is to cultivate life out of the chaos. Steward the creation. Rear the kids. Name the animals. This is the invitation of the divine to humankind, to make the whole thing flourish. And God puts mankind into a garden called Eden and tells them to do anything that they want. They just need to spend their lives growing up and and making the chaos into good things. And the only thing that they were told not to do was to eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Why? Well, how fast can a human become perfectly knowledgeable? How fast can a human grow up and be like God? Well, it's never instantaneous, and it's never fast. It takes humankind and individual humans millennia and lifetime to grow good. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They try to be like God. They try to grow up and become perfect in a moment. But humans aren't perfect. Humans can't do it. So filled with shame and guilt, they hide in the trees and they cover themselves with leaves. And God comes calling, Adam and Eve, where are you? It's always a curse to try and be perfect like the divine. Set outside of Eden, east of Eden, we start to see a cosmic story of estrangement. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve become estranged from each other. They cover themselves up, no longer able to bear their innocence before one another. And there's also estrangement between them and the divine. They're set outside of the garden east of Eden. So we have estrangement between lovers and estrangement between humans and God. In chapter 4, Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel grow up. They decide on the same day to bring the divine an offering. So Cain brings God some grain, and Abel brings God an animal from his flock. And for some reason, God seems to be more pleased with Abel's offering than with Cain's, and this makes Cain so mad, so mad that he wants to kill his brother. And the divine says to Cain, anger is crouching at your door, but you can overcome it. Team Shale, thou mayest. Oh, and Cain shakes his head yes, but in his heart he says no. And as soon as God leaves, he kills his brother and buries him in the very dirt that God used to fashion his own father into life. And so you see the estrangement's not just between lovers and it's not just between uh, humans and the divine. The estrangement is also a familial estrangement. And moving into chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, we have the flood. God cleanses the entire earth. 
and only Noah and his family survive. You see, the estrangement is also between humankind and the creation. It's a wily relationship between humans and the creation. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we see this estrangement among all of humankind, among the nations. In those chapters, we read what's called the table of nations. And in chapter 11, humankind is still one, trying to build this tower up into the heavens to proclaim their own power and to declare their own goodness. And they're scattered and their languages separate into a whole bunch of different languages. And so in chapters 3 to 11 of Genesis, we see estrangement. Uh, There's estrangement between lovers, between humans and God, estrangement within a family. There's estrangement with humans and creation. And finally, there's estrangement among the nations. Which brings us back to this all-important question. What puts the end to this estrangement? How is the garden cultivated into a world at peace? Well, in chapter 12, God calls Abram, and we start to explore this whole idea of faith. Abram, if you go to this land that I tell you to go to, I will bless you and you will become a great nation and your entire nation will be a blessing to the whole world. So so maybe if humankind just believe enough, if they just have enough faith, well, maybe that's what will put an end to the estrangement. Maybe that's what will cultivate this world, this garden into a world at peace. So Abram goes, and his wife Sarai, she goes. So they go, and they have a child. They have Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah have two children, Jacob and Esau. And the blessing goes from Abram to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob has two wives and two concubines. And among all of that relationship, they have 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of Genesis, there's a famine in the land. It's interesting. It's as though not even faith can keep famines from happening in a world full of estrangement. And so, at the end of Genesis, they go out of the land and they move into Egypt. And at the end of Genesis, Israel is a welcome guest. 400 years of silence, we move into Exodus. Israel is crying out for liberation because they've gone from welcome guest to unwelcome slave. And they spend all of their time baking bricks, day after day after day. And I love this part of our story. They cry out to God for liberation, and we're told that God hears. It's as though God hears the cries for liberation. Not just back then, but maybe even today. And there are a lot of cries for liberation today, are there not? So God raises up Moses. Moses performs all of these signs and wonders. The very last sign and wonders performed on this day that they start to call Passover. On Passover, Israel is told to slaughter lambs, to wipe the lamb blood on the doorposts. In the evening, uh, death is going to pass over Egypt and slaughter the firstborn of every family. And all of the Israelites will be preserved. And Pharaoh is going to tell Israel to get out of Egypt and to go. (laughs) And so that's what happens. They pass through the Red Sea and they get into the wilderness and Israel sings her first worship song of thanks to God. Exodus chapter 19, Israel's at the foot of this mountain and God says to Moses, tell the people to cleanse themselves, to get themselves right because uh, in the morning the ram's horn is going to blow and when the ram's horn blows, I want all of Israel to come up onto the mountain and I'm going to make them all into a nation of priests. It's as though Israel is supposed to be the blessing to the whole world that God promised Abraham by faith. Well, morning comes and the ram's horn blows and the cloud descends and the earth shakes and the Israelites fall over and they say to Moses, Moses, you go up to the mountaintop. 
we don't want to go up there. So Moses goes up, and he comes down with Ten Commandments. And so here we move from faith to obedience. Perhaps obedience is what will put an end to the estrangement. Perhaps obedience is what will help cultivate this garden into a world at peace. So Moses comes down, he speaks the commandments to the people, and Israel says, we will obey. We will obey. Now, we'll step over Leviticus to Numbers, because Numbers really comes right up on the heels of Exodus chapter 20. And God tells Israel, go into the land of promise. So they send spies. Spies go into the land for 40 days, and they check it out, and they come back, and they say to Moses and the leaders of Israel, this land is good. It flows with milk and honey. But the people are huge. We will not go. And Moses and the leaders say, we have to go. I mean, think of all the signs and wonders that God just did to get us out of Egypt. God is powerful. God can get us into the land, and the people say, no, we will not go. And so the story of Numbers is the story of wandering. Israel wanders and wanders and wanders for 40 years uh, while this older generation dies and this younger generation grows up. You see, Israel cannot have enough faith. It's as though there's never enough faith. Have you ever met someone with perfect faith? And it's as though Israel cannot be obedient. I mean, just days after saying, we will obey, they decline going into the land. It's as though they can never be obedient enough. Humans always tend to be just a little bit afraid. Okay, so then what can we try next? Well, how about we try violence? Joshua. Israel goes into the land and annihilates man, woman, child, and animal. As if this is going to put an end to the estrangement as though this is what's going to cultivate a garden into a land, into a world at peace. And so they go in and they annihilate, they annihilate, they annihilate, we go from Joshua right into Judges, and it's the same story of violence, except now we have these judges. So what happens in Judges is Israel falls into sin, and then God, uh, then Israel cries out for help, and, and God raises up a judge. And a judge then comes in and takes down a nation that is um, causing Israel to suffer. And then the entire time that judge is alive, Israel lives in peace. But then the judge dies, and then Israel falls back into sin, and then Israel's conquered by another nation, and then they cry out for help, and God raises up another judge, and this judge, through violence, brings about peace, and it just keeps going through judges. But, but the cycle in judges is not static. It's, it's actually a downward descent of chaos. And so each judge that comes along brings about peace through more might and more violence. By the time we get to the end of Judges, what the judge does is the judge cuts a person's body into 12 pieces and ships those body parts off to the 12 tribes of Israel saying, we are super sick. We have a major problem. And so faith isn't enough and obedience isn't enough and violence isn't enough. None of those things put an end to the estrangement. None of those ways of being cultivate the garden into a world at peace. Well, what should we try next? Well, how about kings? Let's try some politics. Politics are good, right? Can I get an amen? <laughs> oh, so in Samuel, uh, Israel says to Samuel the prophet, hey, we want a king like all of the other nations have. And Samuel says, you can't have a king. You're a theocracy. God is your king. You're supposed to be different. And Israel says, no, we want a king like all of the other nations. And Samuel goes to God, and God says, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them a king. So they get Saul. And Saul looks like a king. 
He's tall and handsome and strong. He has great hair. He's just got it all. And Saul's okay. I mean, kind of a wishy-washy king, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But what we'll learn is that kings are human. They are not perfect. Not even kings can eat from the tree of knowledge and become instantly perfect. It takes time for humans and humankind to grow good. So Saul dies at the end of Samuel. We have David, and David's a pretty good king. Again, he's not perfect. He does some horrific things. He's even violent, but, but we're told that he has a good heart. He seems to acknowledge his wrongs. He seems to be a human one who is simply, over time, getting a little bit better as a human being. Samuel ends, we move into the book of Kings. David dies, his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon builds the most exquisite palace and temple in the known world. It's interesting. How does he build it? Well, he builds it with slaves. Isn't that interesting? This nation that becomes a nation by being rescued out of Egypt where they were slaves becomes the empire who has slaves. This is not a good story. Solomon is not the right kind of king that puts an end to the estrangement. There's just more and more estrangement with kings and empires. Well, Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam becomes king. And Rehoboam, he seemed like a pretty good guy, but he's a younger sort of guy. And so Israel comes out to him, and Israel says, we loved your dad, but he was hard. He taxed us heavily, and he put us to work. Will you lighten our load just a little? And Rehoboam says, let me, go to, let me think about it. And he goes and he talks to his dad's advisors. And says, what do you think I should do? And they say, Rehoboam, if you lighten their load just a little, they will loyally follow you for the rest of your life. And he says, thanks. And then he goes to talk to his friends. He says, what do you guys think I should do? And they're like, Rehoboam, this is not the time to lighten things up. This is the time for you to put your foot down. This is the time to show them that you are stronger than your dad. So he comes back out and he calls all of Israel to him. And he says to them, you want to be in a light in your load? I'm not. I'm going to double down. I'm going to sting you like a scorpion. And Israel says, to your tents, O Israel. And this kingdom that's supposed to be a priesthood that blesses the entire world, it disintegrates into two kingdoms, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Israel, Judah. Uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam become these two kings of this divided kingdom. And from those two kings, we just have king after king after king after king, and they just get worse and worse and worse and worse. Faith, obedience, violence, kings cannot put an end to the estrangement. Things get so bad that God just gives Israel over to other nations. Assyria conquers the northern tribe, the northern nation, Israel. Assyria then gets conquered by Babylon. Babylon conquers the southern nation, Judah. Eventually, Babylon is conquered by Persia. King Cyrus says at the end of Second Chronicles, just the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, okay, you've suffered enough. Let him, singular, let him go up and build a temple. Well, maybe somebody's going to come along and going to build a temple, and maybe somehow this temple and this story is going to be different enough that it can actually put an end to the estrangement that faith and obedience and violence and kings could not do. This is the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it brings us to the New Testament. Perhaps it's time for a new kind of story. I think this is what we're getting at when we work our way through the Hebrew Scriptures. 
we get to the end, there's still estrangement, there's still division, there's still disintegration, and we're wanting to know, is somebody going to go up and build God a temple? With all of those things in mind, we're wondering, perhaps it's time for a new kind of faith, a new kind of obedience, a new kind of king, a new kind of kingdom. Maybe there's a new way of being in the world that could actually nurture goodness. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you remember that that word in the beginning? The word that, that cut the stars and swirled the oceans deep? The word that fashioned Adam and Eve out of dirt? Well, here it is in John, enfleshed for all to see. And these four gospels, these books called gospel, gospel literally means good news. And so we want to ask, what is the good news? Well, Jesus is very clear about it in Luke chapter 4. He walks into a synagogue, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he declares good news to the poor, which is release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, the oppressed go free, and the proclamation of God's favor is spoken upon everyone and everything. That's gospel. Jesus then rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. And we're told that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed upon him. And then he says to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we're told that everyone spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Gracious words from the lips of Jesus. Gracious words from somebody considered to be a rogue rabbi. Gracious words from somebody who is maybe religious. That's actually astonishing, isn't it? (laughs) I wonder if faith in these gracious words could help bring an end to the estrangement. During another sermon, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes up onto a mountain, kind of like Moses, and he gives not ten commandments, but nine blessings. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourning, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry and thirsty, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the insulted. And in this sermon, Jesus isn't simply redirecting our effort from like one kind of obedience, be obedient like this, to another kind of obedience. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is he is casting a vision that makes space for all kinds of people and all kinds of experiences. You see, according to the sermon, all people, especially the least, the least, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, those who have little to nothing, the least are blessed. They belong. They are included in the heart and domain of the divine. Which makes me wonder, I wonder if obedience to a blessing that makes room for all kinds of people and experiences, instead of obedience to a law, could help bring an end to all of this estrangement. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is a king. But here's the thing. He's unlike any of the kings that we see in Samuel and that we see in the book of Kings. This king has no palace, no temple, no wealth, no military, no wives. This king simply invites every person, come and follow after me. And this king talks about a kingdom that he calls heaven, which he can't really articulate very well because he uses simile to get us to better understand what a kingdom like heaven is. It's like yeast. It's like a treasure. It's like a pearl. Jesus says this kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree that rises up and gives rest, rest to all of the birds of the air. 
This is a beautiful kingdom of belonging for every kind of person. You see, it's a kingdom near, it's a kingdom at hand that Jesus says belongs especially to the least of these. The children, the unclean, the irreligious, the broken, the poor, the sick. And in a very short period of time, hundreds, thousands of people begin to follow Jesus. In fact, as he entered into Jerusalem for the last time, as Passover drew near, crowds formed and they waved palm branches and they screamed out, Hosanna to the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And I think they're thinking maybe this is going to be like our good old kings. But still, that's an old story that needs retelling. I wonder if this radical king and his heavenly kingdom could help bring an end to the estrangement. And then it was Passover. Remember Passover? During Passover, Israel slaughtered lambs, placed lamb blood on the doorpost, ate a meal in haste, expecting liberation. At night, death passes over Israel, but took the life of every firstborn Egyptian, and Pharaoh commanded Israel to leave Egypt, and they were saved. Do you see how that story goes? We have some kind of feast. Our God annihilates all of these people, and then we are free. That's how it goes. And I think the Israelites, especially the disciples following after Jesus, couldn't miss that this was Passover and that they were with Jesus and that Jesus was probably going to become the new Moses. Oh, but it's such a different story. Near the end of the Gospels, the good news, on this very night during Passover, Jesus sits around a table sharing bread and wine with his disciples, including Judas, whom we're told the devil had entered into him and he decided to betray his Lord. Jesus shares a meal with all of them. That's an important part of the story that religious people often miss. He then said, take, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. Body broken, blood shed, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Well, Jesus is arrested and his disciples want to fight violence, but Jesus says no, and so they all flee. His robe is torn. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. He's mocked and beaten, pinned to a cross. I like how the book of Acts says it, though. He's pinned to a tree. Of course, a tree. Do you remember that tree knowledge of good and evil that seemed to somehow inaugurate all of the estrangement? Well, here is Jesus, Son of God, King of Kings, Word made flesh, pinned to a tree on Passover. Not killing, but being killed. Not cursing, but declaring forgiveness, dripping divine fruit and offering a different kind of knowledge about life and God and love, which you can't, like Adam and Eve, have now, take now, seize now. Of course not. Knowledge about life and and God and love takes humanity millennia, millennia to to move from like tribal, barbaric, violent people into... uh, Civilized, kind, loving, gracious, generous, forgiving people. It takes humankind a long time to get there, and we've got a ways to go, don't we? And if you've watched any human grow, it takes humans' entire lifetimes to grow good. And no one, no one ever gets it perfect. In fact, to assume perfect knowledge now, right now, by any religion or denomination or church or country or person is just that same old Genesis 3 story that results in curses and chaos. And so you see, this is a whole new way of understanding it all. Despite our slow progression to see and to understand, which is the only way to grow up, we are told divinity is present. That's what we're told. We're told that divinity is forgiving. That's what we're told. 
We're told that divinity is healing and feeding and including even people like Judas who have the devil himself inside of them. We are told that divinity is breaking and bleeding and inviting even today, come and follow after me. I wonder if being crushed by violence as opposed to increasing the violence could help bring an end to the estrangement and cultivate a world at peace. Well, after three days in a tomb, Jesus, who is killed by those who think they've eaten all of the fruit of knowledge, only to wreak more chaos in the world, is raised to life. And if you've read any old ancient literature like Greek mythology or Roman mythology, which basically just steals Greek mythology, right? If a god is killed and rises from the dead, that god is going to wreak havoc on those people who killed him. But in this story, it's all upside down. Jesus rises from the dead and proclaims over and over and over again, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He then tells his followers to go out into the world and make students of his way of being. Kind of like priests of peace. Priests of peace in the world. He then ascends to the right hand of the Father, which means that Jesus' way of being in the world is always powerful and forever eternal. Love, inclusion, grace, kindness, goodness, patience, all of these things last forever in the goodness that they bring about in the world. Acts. The spirit of Jesus is let loose into this world. And we're told something astonishing. We're told that this man who goes up isn't building a physical temple in which people are either in or out. We're told that, the, that humankind is the temple of the divine. That's what Acts tells us. Acts tells us that together, human beings, we are a temple of the divine. And this world, we are told, is not absent of, but awash in the divine who is in and through it all. Jesus' students then begin to embody and to proclaim his radical message. Good news, blessing, especially on the outcasts. A divine king has inaugurated a heavenly kingdom by undoing the way of violence through the way of love. Peace be upon you. Join with us in this revelation. And the message spreads to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the very ends of the known earth. From Gospels to Acts to Revelation. The estrangement between lovers has come to its end. The estrangement between humans and God has come to its end. The estrangement between family members has come to its end. The estrangement between humans and creation has come to its end. The estrangement between all the people of the world has come to its end. For finally, at last, the entire world is at peace. Why? Because it has awakened to. It has rested in into, it has been integrated by divine love. For finally, at last, the entire world is at peace because it has awakened to divine love. You see, it is you. It is your soul. It is your relationships. It is this world that is in full bloom, which is what the Bible refers to as eternal life. You see, it's a new era, a new dispensation, a new eon breaking in right now that Jesus is inviting us to participate in. When everything within us wants to get all crazy and all riled up and all violent and looking for more faith or more obedience or, or more violence or more kings or politics, and the entire time 
the New Testament is crying out, you've already tried those things. They don't work. Try this. Follow after me and see what might grow up. May it be so. May we live into this story and may it truly cast our vision as a faith community, shape our language, orient our hearts, and direct the ways that we mark out our days here on earth. Let us pray. God, thank you for this story. This story that reminds us that nobody grows up into perfect today. That perfection is a lifelong journey and that the way of Jesus is an invitation to grow good, to grow up into love, to say yes to ways that actually make things better, which are not often faith, obedience, violence, and kings. I pray and ask that Jesus might truly become more and more our Messiah, a way to follow, a life to live that brings about goodness, especially today. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.